You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Each week we explore some aspect of the world of intelligence and espionage, its past, its present, or its future. Coming up next on SpyCast. One major difference between how NSA agent is being trained in North Korea compared to other intelligence agents in different countries may be that North Korea is rigorous in teaching ideological education to its agents. It is fundamental and basic curriculum for all NSA agents to be taught the principles of Kim Il-sungism and Kim Jong-ilism. This week's guest is a double rarity, a North Korean defector and one who has come out from the shadows after nine years of silence. In 2014, Kim Jong-woo was recalled back to his country from his tour in Beijing. He travelled south to the border with North Korea, but he suddenly stopped. He realised that if he went home, he would most probably be purged, a euphemism for executed since he had found himself on the wrong side of a violent power struggle at the very heart of North Korean intelligence. He decided to go back to the Chinese capital, gather his immediate family and go on the run, defecting to South Korea. After years under the radar, Dr. Kim finally broke his silence by speaking to yours truly for this special spy cast. From Pyongyang to Seoul to the spy cast studio in Washington, D.C., This is Dr. Kim's story. In this episode, we discuss the journey of a defector, how intelligence officers are politically indoctrinated in North Korea, the cult of personality around Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un, and the war against religion by North Korean intelligence agencies. A reminder that you can support us for free by A, subscribing to the show, and or B, giving us a five-star podcast review. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Thank you very much for coming to speak to us about your experiences. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, Thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this program. It is a great honor for myself as well. Thank you. Thank you. So I just wondered to start off, could you just tell us a little bit more about your time in North Korean intelligence? What did you do for the DPRK? What was your job title? To briefly describe my work, perhaps in the best American context, I work for a North Korean agency quite similar perhaps to U.S. FBI, controlling Bureau of Investigations for 17 years. 17 years. And you were born and raised in in North Korea, Dr. Kim? Yes, I was born in Pyongyang, the capital city of North Korea, and I grew up in the capital. Did you have any family or friends in South Korea when you were growing up? I did not have any relatives or family members living in South Korea. Okay. And can you tell me the the name of the agency that's, that's similar to the Federal Bureau of Investigation? Yes. I served under the 
DPRK's agency, National Security Agency, NSA. And how long were you with it? You were with the NSA for 17 years, that's correct? That is correct. 17 years, I, I only served in, at NSA. Okay. And help me understand the functions of this organization. Does it have law enforcement capabilities like the FBI, or is it more similar to MI5 uh, in, in Great Britain in the sense that it's counterintelligence, counterespionage, counterterrorism, and so forth? You are correct. The North Korean National Security Agency is similar to both the functions of FBI and British MI5 in the sense that it does conduct intelligence and counterintelligence, and yet it is legally authorized to also implement North Korea's laws as well. The North Korea's criminal penalty laws specifically authorize NSA to carry out criminal penalties against those who commit crimes against the state. And our audience probably won't know much about North Korean intelligence. Can you just tell us briefly who are some of the other major agencies? North Korea's intelligence agencies can be divided into two sections, two divisions. One, intelligence. Another, counterintelligence. For the intelligence part, the agency is responsible for sending overseas agents to other countries. That is called literally intelligence agency. The agency that I served, National Security Agency, we are responsible for counterintelligence. So our job is prevent other countries' espionage against DPRK regime. So I would describe the North Korea's intelligence as headed by these two main organizations, Intelligence Agency and National Security Agency. Okay, that's, that's very helpful. And is there also a military intelligence agency? So in Russia, you have the SVR, the FSB, and the GRU. Is there something similar to the GRU in North Korea? For North Korea, the, the intelligence agency that I already described it is headed, organized under the North Korean military. Okay. However, within the North Korean military, to ensure monitoring of ideological conformity of North Korean military personnel, North Korean People's Liberation Army also have People's Army in security agencies running and overseeing espionage or counterintelligence within the military divisions. Okay, so both the intelligence agency and the national security agency are they're run by the military. There's no civilian intelligence agencies. Yes. To provide the background, the today, what we now describe call intelligence agency of DPRK, it was formed by combining previous several intelligence agencies together as a as a uniform body, and then later, intelligence agency was reassigned under the jurisdiction of the North Korean military. One exception, however, is that agency I served, National Security Agency, we are separate from North Korean military. Just very briefly, you know, we're not going to spend too long on the organizational dynamics, but I'm just trying to understand the, the architecture of North Korean intelligence. When do these changes take place? Are there political reasons for the changes? Or is it purely for efficiency? Or is it for some other reason when these changes took place? Very important question. Very mm. important question. Oh. I, I'm glad. <laughs> Excellent question. So originally in the early days of the DPRK, North Korean army did have its own specific agency, similar to GRU in Soviet Union. This North Korean army's intelligence agency at the time was only responsible for conducting intelligence activities and counterintelligence against the hostile militaries 
of enemy countries. Separate from the military side of the intelligence, at the time, the early days of North Korean regime's history, the North Korean Labor Party, the ruling party, had also its intelligence agencies carrying out intelligence on behalf of the party. So in the beginning, the organization was set up in such a way that the military and party each had their own intelligence organs. When Kim Jong-un, the third leader, the new current leader, he became, he became inaugurated as a leader, he was more familiar with the works, the tasks of the military side of the intelligence and the National Security Agency, but less with the Labor Party's intelligence organ. After coming to power, made a new decree that previous intelligence organs, there were three organs under the North Korean Labor Party, they were all reassigned, combined, integrated with existing military intelligence organs as a uniform body. Kim Jong-un, he trusted at the time the director of North Korean military intelligence, directed by the name of Kim Yong-chol, and therefore he promoted Kim Yong-chol to be the new, the first director of intelligence agency that combined previous military and labor party intelligence organs. That's how we got the intelligence agency we see today. So since then, with the creation of intelligence agency, Director Kim Yong-chol, he was given the position to oversee, coordinate all the intelligence activities of North Korean state. This is a sign that of many high-ranking leaders in North Korea, Kim Yong-chol, the intelligence agency director, he is most favored and trusted by the leader. As a result, Kim Yong-chol, who already has the privilege and power as the director of Security National Intelligence Agency, he received additional position as a key secretary of the Labor Party. So now he has an additional position also within the Labor Party as well. I'm just trying to understand these changes. So am I right in thinking this is connected to Kim Jong-un's insecurity, his lack of authority, he's young, he gets the top job, he doesn't have a lot of experience, and, and this is his way of asserting control over, over the country? Accurate analysis. <laughs> In 2012 or 13, when Kim Jong-un became the leader after his father Kim Jong-il passed away, Within the party, within the ruling Labour Party, Kim Jong-un's political clout was at the time still weak. One organ Kim Jong-un at the time most trusted, most relied on, was not the party, but the military intelligence organs. And Kim Jong-chol was at the time one of the few high-ranking DPRK officials whom Kim Jong-un trusted. Therefore, restructuring the intelligence organs and concentrating the power on his trusted associate, Kim Yong-chol, was an important step for Kim Jong-un in his early days in power to consolidate his control within the state apparatus. The moderator may have also seen him, at least in cameras, in TVs, as Kim Yong-chol was the one who's been to United States several times during the Trump administrations and played a key part in organizing Trump-Kim Jong-un summit. Mm -hmm. That's him. And I'm just trying to understand Kim Jong-un's relationship with the party. Why did he favor the military over the party? Why was he not more in control of the party? And is all of this related to the removal of Marxist language and communist language from the North Korean constitution? I'm just trying to understand the evolution of ideology in North Korea compared to the structure of the regime. To answer the first part of your question, yes. When Kim Jong-un first became the leader of North Korea, he trusted the National Security Agency and the military organs much more than the actual Labour Party apparatus. Consolidation of power was implemented through first strengthening his control over the military organs, the national security agencies, and using both of these organs, the hard power, to then go after 
the Labour Party leaders that he suspected were had questionable loyalty toward his leadership. Kim Jong-un first became a leader in 2012, but it actually took him four or five years to complete control over the Labour Party. In 2016 or 17, Kim Jong-un finally became the first secretary of the Labour Party, which signified that now the party apparatus was safely under Kim Jong-un's leadership. In 2017, when Kim Jong-un's political control was fully consolidated, he removed Kim Won-hong, who was previously director of National Security Agency, supporter of Kim Jong-un, but Kim Jong-un decided it was time for him to be let go. In South Korea, there's an expression, when the hunting dog has finished its mission, there is no need for the dog, so dog is removed or even eaten by the owner. And was he was he eaten or was he removed or something else? Come on. Yes, he was purged. Executed? What I know is that, no, he was not executed. He was demoted to a provincial office away from the inner circle of power. Mm. And help me understand what's happening with communism. So communism is removed, as I understand, from the constitution. And a lot of the world still see North Korea as a communist state. But North Korea doesn't see itself any longer as a communist state. So just help me understand that transition. I, I, I applaud your very insightful observation of North Korean <laughs> political system. Thank you. <laughs> your observation is very correct. On the previous two leaders, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, they did officially proclaim to succeed and aspire for the principles of Marx-Leninism. The new leader, Kim Jong-un, especially by the end, near the recent years, Kim Jong-un's regime has removed reference to Marx-Leninism within the party language. As a replacement, rather than emphasizing affirming commitment to Marx-Leninism, Kim Jong-un's regime now affirm allegiance to Kim Il-sungism and Kim Jong-ilism, the ideology of the father and grandfather. Now, today's North Korea regime is much more explicit in their declaration that party's identity, party's ideological root does not originate from Marx and Lenin, but whether it originates from Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, the two previous leaders of North Korea. That's the party's identity. Your accurate observation that communism, that reference, has been deleted from the Labour Party. That's correct. Kim Jong-un himself has made a judgment that what we often describe as communism is abstract and unrealistic and unapplicable for North Korea's today's situation. The communism as understood by North Korea regime, it dates back to the Soviet era, particularly in the early days of Soviet industrialization. And later, North Korea redefined the meaning of communism as a particular political system in which its domestic mass, the populations, gets reassured basic living standard. That is communism, as the regime defines. And now, Kim Jong-un's reinterpretation is that communism as a term is no longer applicable to today's North Korea. So that term is no longer needed. That's why North Korea has redefined its ideological root solely based on the policies and legacies of the two previous leaders. Is there also a danger in doing this for the regime? Because if you say that you're communist, this is an ideology that governs the whole of society. It's a, it's a total system. It explains government, it explains the market, it explains how every part of the organism relates to one another. But if it's just on a family, if it's just on the grandfather, the father and the son, that's a very thin base of power. At some point, surely people are going to think, you know, this one family line, the world does not revolve mm. around them. But for Marxism or communism, it's a, it's a total system that explains everything. So is there also a danger in this narrowing of the ideological basis of the, 
the regime. Ah, yeah. I agree. From a, from a rational perspective, that is correct. Yes. Yet, this replacement of Marx-Leninism through Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il-ism was possible in North Korean context. There's two factors. First, North Korean populist domestic citizens are much more likely to conform to whatever ideological changes imposed by the new leader, that's first factor. And second, somewhat paradoxically, North Korea's regime's assessment is that holding on to your traditional rhetoric of Marxism, that exposes inconsistency of the regime to its population to continue to use the our traditional Marx-Leninist rhetoric. North Korea's main propaganda to its citizens emphasize what could be described as North Korea exceptionalism, concept that North Korea is unique, unique even in its socialist practice from other socialist countries, and therefore socialist North Korea's foundation originates from its creator, Kim Il-sung. So that's the ideological unifying principle, identity of the state. In North Korea, should North Korean academics express protests that Kim Jong-ilism or Kim Il-sungism is either a deviation from traditional Marxism or goes contrary to Marxism, or that Kim Il-sung's achievements is mainly a shadow or a copied version of original Marxist principle, those expressions or philosophical disagreements would be subject to suppression and punishment. And can I ask, just before we move on to intelligence, to focus more on that, um, is is Kim Jong-il's haircut part of the ideological framework for North Korea? I'm being playful, obviously. (laughs) Yes. Kim Jong-un, the today's leader, he has a mental complex, a complicated perception about his direct father, Kim Jong-il. Even in North Korea, compared to the, the first leader, Kim Il-sung, who's a godlike figure, Kim Jong-il actually has a more shady background stories about him, the second leader. One example, to this day, the state, North Korea state, does not reveal publicly discourse who was the first wife of Kim Jong-il. That's not a public knowledge. As a result, Kim Jong-un is more likely to have sought to emulate his grandfather more than the father. North Korean populists are more likely to still retain respect, reverence toward the first leader Kim Il-sung more than the second leader. There's still nostalgia among North Korean population that at least in Kim Il-sung era, the pre-fall of communism, the fall of the Soviet Union, North Korea's living standard was okay back then. The famine and starvation in the 1990s under Kim Jong-il's era, the second leader, is still strongly present in the memories of North Korean population. That's why Kim Jong-un wants to evoke people's nostalgia not about Kim Jong-il, but on the better times lived under Kim Il-sung, 60s and 70s. To clarify, Korea is a peninsula in Northeast Asia, bordering China into the north, and Japan across the Korean Strait to the south. Japan annexed Korea in 1910 and held on to it until the Japanese surrender at the end of World War II in 1945 whereupon it was occupied by the United States and the Soviet Union along the 38th parallel. That is, the 38th degree of latitude north of the equator. This occupation was meant to be temporary, but Cold War dynamics ensured that Korea would be divided along ideological lines, a situation that has persisted until the present day. In 1950, the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, backed by the Soviet Union, invaded the South in the hope of uniting the country along communist lines. The United Nations, led by the US, intervened on the side of South Korea, but the South Korean capital city of Seoul was captured by the North Koreans, 
who then went on to capture almost all of South Korea, except for a small corner of the country in the southeast around the port city of Busan. The United Nations force, led by General Douglas MacArthur, counterattacked and in turn almost overran the whole of North Korea, up to the Chinese border. But this led China to enter the war, forcing the UN to withdraw back to the 38th parallel line. After a two-year stalemate, an armistice was signed in 1953, creating a demilitarized buffer zone between the two countries. Note, this was not a peace treaty, so technically the two countries are still at war, with the grandson of the leader who oversaw the North Korean invasion of the South in 1950 still in power. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past, Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. For me, for the listeners of the podcast, it's important that they understand the context within which North Korean intelligence takes place. Because there's no point in understanding this if you don't understand how the state functions. And how did you join North Korean intelligence? How did you get recruited? At my young age, I wanted to be an intelligence agent, someone who does intelligence. Even in North Korea, they read Sherlock Holmes novels. He oh, read really? it, and that inspired him. Oh, wow. As I grew older, being an intelligence agent was my dream. It was my career dream as the best way for me to serve the country. And therefore, I prepared her in order to be recruited into this agency. Is it very difficult and competitive to join this agency? Absolutely. First thing is, even in order to be even considered for the position as an agent for the National Security Agency, your social class background has to be inspectable without flaws. As National Security Agency is at the forefront in defending the regime from the enemies abroad, absolute loyalty has to be, has to be um, verified. Next, 
after social backgrounds has been verified, it is required for the possible applicant to have satisfiable resume, such as having completed minimum military service. And National Security Agency it actually has a university under its oversight to train its agents. So three main criteria that I had to pass in order to actually work for National Security Agency was I had to prove the spotless cleanliness of my personal class background as loyal to the regime. I had to prove that I completed a required mandatory military service for the North Korean military, and I had to attend and graduate from the university run by National Security Agency. And these three criteria are just the, the basic requirements of all NSA agents. After successfully completing all three criteria, I underwent the review examination process. I passed, and then I began working for the agency. Now there is actually a change in how the North Korean National Security Agency recruit new personnel, especially because of development of technology. I have heard that today's National Security Agency of North Korea also specially recruit certain applicants with proven talents in core technology field. Wow, this is really, really fascinating. <laughs> did Did Dr. Kim grow up yeah. feeling Korean, North Korean, communist, or some variation of the three? I guess to answer the first part, he even grew up, growing up in North Korea. Dr. Kim identified Korean identity and North Korean identity as separate. While North Koreans and South Koreans share the common cultural roots as Korean ethnic group, with years of divisions, with cultural economic changes, I have recognized, I have always perceived distinctive characteristics between. North Korean populace and South Korean populace. Okay, okay, and now, like now, does Dr. Kim think that Korea will ever be reunited? Because you could go to Germany and say there's differences between East and West or North and South. Yes. There's differences in the United States between East and West and yes. North and South. So. You can always find a way to disunite, but you can always find a way to unite. Does he think that Korea will be reunited, mm -hmm. and would he like Korea to be reunited? First, as a background, I observed that East-West Germany's relationship is very different from today's North and South Korea, as even during the Cold War, there are still interactions between West and East German populace, while there is a near shutdown of communications and interactions between inter-Korean societies. For myself, I... Envision, I aspire for, I desire for the day when reunification is achieved. To be more specific, however, when I envision reunification, I am envisioning reunified Korea under a liberal democratic system, as opposed to say unified Korea under more North Korean system. That I oppose. Not only is it unlikely, but I do not wish that kind of reunification. My desire is that. In a unified Korea, even North Korean populace or population living in northern parts of the Korean Peninsula will be guaranteed fundamental standard and rights as humans. Mm -hmm. And help us understand the training that you went through. So you spoke about the university for the National Security Agency. What other kinds of training did you undertake? Um, is there anything that's very specific to training a North Korean intelligence officer as opposed to a British intelligence officer, a South Korean intelligence officer, and so forth? University under the oversight of the National Security Agency. Previously, its name was Pyongyang Technical College. That was the original name. The name was written for the obvious purpose of 
making sure the university is not known as intelligence training school. But on the Kim Jong Un in 2012, Pyongyang Technical College, the name became explicitly changed to take to National Security Agency Political Training School. One major difference between how NSA agent is being trained in North Korea compared to other intelligence agents in different countries, maybe that North Korea is rigorous in teaching ideological education to its agents. It is fundamental, a basic curriculum for all NSA agents to be taught the principles of Kim Il Songism and Kim Jong Ilism. Afterwards, each agents as intelligence agents or counterintelligence agents are taught. Technical training necessary for doing their jobs. Some of the things that intelligence agents are taught is how to manage spies, how to detect a spotted spy, how to trail after a spy, how to wiretap a potential spy suspect, how to decode a classified documents, how to be good at taekwondo, and to improve their Weapon shooting skills, m a r k m a n s h i p Furthermore, because the national security agencies are authorized by the state to implement criminal penalties against the dissidents, each of the agencies are also trained to conduct investigations, understand the legal provisions of the criminal penalty codes. So help me understand as a counterintelligence agent. In the United States, quite often you're investigating diplomats operating under official cover. You're investigating foreign travelers or visitors or business people. But in the West, North Korea is known as the Hermit Kingdom sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it's a closed system that's very difficult to get into, even for South Koreans. So. Is most of the counterintelligence energy directed towards internal dissidents rather than foreigners who are there trying to conduct espionage? Because it's what's called for uh, many, say, CIA officers, uh, a denied area. It's a very difficult place to, you know, you can't turn up there as a an American and just. Walk around and start recruiting people. It's very difficult. So yeah, just help help me understand that. Is most of the energy going towards North Korean dissidents or mm. political subversives compared to the CIA, who would be looking at Russian diplomats, yes. Chinese businessmen, etc. North Korean NSA targets both foreigners and domestic citizens. North Korean National Security Agency have two two. Directorate, if you will, first directorate is more similar to CIA in a sense that North Korea still have foreign embassies, the ones who have diplomatic relationship with North Korea, stationed in Pyongyang with the embassies and consulates. UN mission is still in North Korea as well. There is also multiple trade liaison office in North Korea. So those pockets of foreigners living in North Korea, they are monitored by Section One. Within the National Security Agency, Section Two, however, focuses on domestic population to ensure there is no, no activities subversive, threatening against the regime being conducted by North Korean civilians themselves. And did Dr. Kim work in one or two or both during his career? I did both of them. Mm, okay. Okay. <laughs> And. Let's move on to some operations. Can you tell us more about your time in Beijing? One of the important work of a national security agent being dispatched to Beijing, so in China, is to ensure that other North Korean citizens, passport holders, do not try to defect to other countries to prevent that from happening. Another important task is: Should Kim Jong Un himself come to Beijing for a visit, already locally dispatched national security agents in Beijing have a responsibility 
to ensure all the logistics are planned and carried out to maximize the security of North Korean leader on his actual visit. So these two tasks are common duties of all national security agencies. Afterwards, then you have a more specific designated task for individual agents. To give an example, North Korea operate North Korean restaurants in China. So some national security agents are responsible for monitoring these North Korea-run restaurants. Very distinctive task. Other national security agents are given specific tasks to monitor the activities of, of other embassy staff and personnel in North Korean embassy to see what are they doing, such as are they trying to defect. Mm-hmm. Some national security agents in China they given a specific task of procurement to find whether there is foreign-made latest technological items that will be very helpful for North Korea's surveillance technologies, monitoring wiretapping technologies, where there's any extra equipment they could buy, purchase in China, and import it back to North Korea. So that would be a very specific task for specific agents. In Beijing, when you were trying to monitor people defecting, was this people defecting to Beijing or using Beijing as a staging ground to go to another country, the United States or South Korea. Uh, and also in Beijing, I'm assuming that uh, I, this is one of the places where North Koreans and South Koreans come across each other. I've spent time in Beijing and eaten at Korean restaurants. <laughs> so the first question defect to China or to other countries? The second question, Beijing is a place where North Koreans and South Koreans meet up and the espionage activities that could take place there. First, it is very unlikely for a North Korean person to directly defect to China. Reason is because if they do, there's a huge risk that China would simply return that person back to North Korea. That's what I thought. I just wanted to clarify. Yes. By law, by criminal law, North Korean civilian in China or overseas should not interact with South Korean citizen or civilian. That's the principle. But obviously, covertly, informally, do some North Korean individuals meet with South Korean individuals in Beijing and other locations? Yes. But this must be a good opportunity for espionage. So for, for Dr. Kim, this is an opportunity to recruit South Koreans or for South Korean intelligence officers. It's a good opportunity to recruit North Koreans because they're, they're in this third space. Yes. That's, that's not neutral, but yes. more neutral. Absolutely. So, so is, of course, most likely it's happening under the water. Both sides, both intelligence agencies engage in trying to recruit the other side. Likely, that's what I predict. It's just that I don't know about it. And the most likely candidate for this kind of operations, of course, China. Chinese intelligence agencies would also do would target North Korean and South Korean civilians living in China for China's intelligence operations. Mm-hmm. So they are the most likely candidate. Sure. And North Korea knows this, which is why North Korean regime, despite the former alliance, also have an attitude of carefulness, even wariness, wariness toward Chinese government, mm-hmm. especially in the areas of intelligence. Mm-hmm. And did Dr. Kim ever brush up against MI6, CIA, or any other Western intelligence agencies? Fortunately, never. Never. <laughs> as far as you know. To be humble, I do not think I am a prized prize asset for those prestigious okay. intelligence agencies of the West. Okay. 
To help you digest this episode, here is a short interlude in the family who have ruled North Korea since Harry Truman was president and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush were in diapers. Kim Jong-un is the current 39-year-old supreme leader of North Korea. His father was Kim Jong-il, who ruled the country until 2011, while his grandfather was Kim Il-sung, who established what went on to become the Kim dynasty and ruled until 1994. It's from the names of the current leader's grandfather and father that we get the term Kim Il-sungism and Kim Jong-ilism, the official ideology of North Korea. Indeed, it is ideology that has allowed such a peculiar state, comparatively speaking, to exist for over 70 years. Initially, it was a Marxist-Leninist state. The grandfather was involved with the communist movement and was a party member, and for these reasons was set up by Joseph Stalin as the leader of the Soviet-occupied territory north of the 38th parallel. As the Cold War progressed, the two communist behemoths that were the Soviet Union and China diverged in their interpretations of Marxism, the so-called Sino-Soviet split. This led to much smaller North Korea establishing a degree of neutrality and independence by declaring that Kim Il-sungism was now the official ideology of the state. This was augmented by his son Kim Jong-il to become Kim Il-sungism and Kim Jong-ilism. Okay, so what is this ideology in a nutshell? One, it emphasizes the notion of North Korean self-reliance, uniqueness, and inner ideological conformity. And two, reverence for its leaders from the Kim bloodline who are all-knowing heroic figures who are gloriously leading the country towards the future. As one scholar points out, it is the idea that, quote, human beings don't need God, they have the Kim family. Close quotes. Can Dr. Kim tell us about a specific operation, a specific event that he was involved in that will illustrate his position in the National Security Agency? So a specific, it could be a recruitment, an operation, just something to to tell the story. So one example, so by constitution, North Korea guarantee religious liberty. In reality, practice of religious worship is banned, forbidden by the state. However, in North Korea, there are, we call them underground house churches, in which believers, so religious believers, secretly congregate for their religious worship outside the surveillance of the state. The state and the national security agencies consider, assess, these members of underground churches as regime threat. Specifically, I want to talk about one province in North Korea called Hwangae South Province, which is actually closer to the DMZ border. This was 1998. There was a family involved in agriculture. So there was a case of a family of four, and then a little further away from the family, there were some cousins. They were the underground church members. They were, this is a family that had been secret believers for many generations. Even even before the coming of communist regime, they were believers and they kept their faith all these years. For many decades under the communist religious oppression, they were still practicing this faith covertly. On Sunday at night, quietly, they would host worship among themselves. So now, for my work, local national security agents eventually heard about this information, that there is a suspected religious activity going on in our town. So for a whole week, local national security agencies monitored this family. At daytime, when the family were out at work, they entered the house to install those hidden spy cameras, as well as listening devices. And through the surveillance we were able to detect on Sunday night, I guess one of the family members, the son, carrying a Bible, moving from one place to another for the purpose of religious 
religious gathering. So hiding in the forest, all the security agencies, they actually took the picture of one of the house members moving from one place to another to attend religious gathering, carrying a Bible that was caught on camera. Even the pictures of the family praying, that was also recorded, caught. So full, perfect evidence of the crime was gathered by national security agents. They came when all the agents rushed into the house, arrested them on the act of worshiping, grabbed them, interrogated them, and then executed them for the crime against it. When mentally did you take the decision to to defect? Like, was was this something that had been building for a longer period of time? Maybe this operation against the religious uh, family these types of things, or was it one event that happened that just changed everything that you that you thought you knew? Like, just help us understand that process of making this very big decision of defecting. There was no particular like, drastic change of my attitude. But to provide you a context, there was a power struggle within the National Security Agency in 2012-2013 as Kim Jong-un began to consolidate his own control over the agency. There was a conflict between existing high-ranking members and new members appointed by Kim Jong-un personally. Power struggle. So in the power struggle, the consequence is one side won. The losing side was purged from power. And I was on the losing side. Mm-hmm. So I was on the side opposed to the new faction being pushed by Kim Jong-un himself. Mm-hmm. So if I was not based in Beijing, but I was based in North Korea, I would have also been purged from National Security Agency. While I was in Beijing, for my own trustworthy colleagues from the inside, I had the inside information on the change in power dynamics in national security agencies, I've heard of it, so I did not go back to North Korea. Instead, I requested asylum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how it began. This is helpful because I did not understand the nature of the defection. I just want to understand the, to how much of a question mark was there over your defection? Question mark um, from whom? Uh, from South Korea. Oh, so a, a North Korean intelligence officer yes. turns up and says, I want to, def- I want to claim asylum. Yes. Immediately you must think, this is a plan, this is an intelligence operation. So just help us understand that process. Yes. Yeah. I did receive, you know, obviously, review examinations entering South Korea, for the purpose of South Korean government to check my background and conduct process in which my legal status could be changed from North Korea to now a South Korean citizen. So that legal process and that review process I had to undergo after I came and arrived to South Korea. It is possible, yes, since I am, I was an agent for North Korean intelligence agency, my counterpart, South Korean Agency, initially might have been more prudent in wanting to conduct background checks on my intention. It is possible. However, my impression was that regardless of what they thought internally, the, those who, who screened me, the, the officials who screened me, were welcoming, supportive of me. I did not feel after coming to South Korea that I was monitored with suspicion by South Korean intelligence. So I was able to live, adjust to a new life in South Korea without feeling that kind of pressure. What would you say to other North Korean intelligence officers who would like to get out, who would like to defect or uh, go for asylum in South Korea or another country? What would you say to them? Word I want to sh- Tell to this potential North Korean intelligence agent who is thinking of asylum is don't think too long, do it. Take decisive action. Okay, okay. A couple of final questions and we'll wrap up. Um, so one of them is what 
What do you think the world most misunderstands about North Korea? Because it's something that, especially in the West, it's the Hermit Kingdom, yes. you know, it's this inscrutable yes. uh, place that no one really knows what's happening. So in, enlighten the listeners. What What's the one thing that you would like to stress to help them better understand North Korea? First of all, that's a very broad question. <laughs> it is, I mean, it is true that many people, it's very, obviously, it's very difficult to have a comprehensive outlook on North Korea's inner state. Yes. So, common sources of how the outside world gets information of North Korea is the several paths. You, you either get the information from tourists from the few diplomatic staff in North Korea or from spies, intelligence agencies who are somehow able to plant the agents in North Korea or from listening to defectors like Dr. Kim. So these are the common sources in which we get information out from North Korea. First, so any information that say CIA or MI5, so if Western or overseas intelligence agencies are able to acquire classified information, Likely, they're only going to share it within the agencies and it's not going to be an open source intelligence for us public, no. Mm. So therefore, most research, most publication on North Korea is likely based on one of two sources. Either eyewitness accounts of foreigners like tourists, business people, or diplomats who've been to North Korea and came out, that's one source, or accounts from North Koreans who have left the country. It's one of the two. So... Certain organizations with certain, you might say progressive, for like a better word, an ideological perspective of North Korea are much more likely to accept these accounts at face value and share it without screening, without filtering. One restrictions, actually big restrictions on relying on sources from foreigners entering North Korea and returning is that there's huge restrictions that North Korea regime imposes on what foreigners can see and watch and read in North Korea. So there's that frame. But even defectors' accounts is limited. And this is because even North Korean defectors, they are speaking from their own individual personal experience. So very restrictive to their own experience. Mm -hmm. And each individual defectors come from different parts of North Korea. So that's Mm -hmm. their limitations. Mm -hmm. So many of the defectors' accounts we have, those are not sufficient for us to really get down into some of the hard data about, say, North Korea's nuclear program or North Korea's royal family. Even defectors, most of them, do not have access to those privately contained informations Mm -hmm. of the state. That is why the question on what is the international perception that needs to be corrected about North Korea? Right now, in our interview, it's difficult for me to pinpoint which one because of sparsity of information, selectivity of information on specific fields. Yes. Okay. Just to come to the end now, so for defectors of some intelligence agencies, there's a degree of, of danger in doing that. We have seen this historically. We've seen it recently with Russia. So I just, so I just want to understand, is this something that is in your, on, in your mind on a daily basis when you're, you're thinking about this, you're worried about it? How much do you have to be concerned about your safety and so forth? So one thing I have taken as precautionary measures Recognizing the potential risk to my life, safety of myself, living in South Korea as a defector is, I have refrained for the past nine years on any public activities. I have refrained from public, publicized activities. To, to be candid, even this, like this open source interview, for me, this required me to take mental decisions. And I obviously feel certain weight or burden as I share my life before the public listeners. Well, I very much appreciate Dr. Kim doing so. Final question, how is he enjoying his visit to America? Is this his first time here and is he enjoying it? Well, it's not a good thing, but it's not a good thing. 
Ever since IF came, arrived to South Korea, United States, and Washington, D.C. was the top cities I wanted to visit going abroad. So I am, I feel honored, I feel joyful to be in D.C. right now. Okay. Well, thanks ever so much. I've really appreciated uh, speaking to you and I've learned a lot. So thank you very much, Dr. Kim. 감사드립니다. 오늘 말씀 감사드립니다. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on next week's show. The primary spies that the Venetians used were the most unexceptional men thrown into the most exceptional circumstances. Well, in most cases, we don't know who they are. There's just a name and that's it because they were not important. They were primarily banished criminals who offered to become spies just to get a revocation of the banishment and some cash. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at intlspycast. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, full transcripts, and almost 600 episodes in our back catalogue. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afu Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester and Jen Iben. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. <laughs>